don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Crook Podcast. I am your host, Anza Bergwell. And this week, we have Kaspar Turkail, the author of the new book, The Power of Ritual, turning everyday uh, activities into soulful practices. And Casper, uh, I'm really looking forward to you hearing this discussion because he is a really kind of out there in the ritual and spiritual kind of guy. He's one of the um, hosts of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, a ridiculously popular podcast where they approach uh, the Harry Potter series like reading uh, the Bible or something um, as a sacred text. He's also... Um, uh, the co-author of a seminal paper on how we gather that talks about, you know, if you've ever heard someone talk about their CrossFit class or Soul Cycle as church, you know, talking about how we're already imbuing secular activities with um, ritual and religious significance in our lives and why we have to because we're human and what we get from that experience. And also we talk a lot about how um, any such community can be betrayed by leaders and how to protect ourselves from um, you know, the strange thing that happens when we gather in communities and have rituals. And it's, it's just like such a uh, poignant and important topic. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Uh, here we go. Casper Turkail, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. So we're gonna be talking today about your book, The Power of Ritual turning everyday activities into soulful practices. Uh, and kind of the original, uh, at least for this book, um, ritual uh, that uh, you're famous for is uh, reading Harry Potter as a sacred text. Yes. <laughs> not, not what I thought <laughs> would be one of my, at least so far, career-defining uh, activities. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, trust me, I understand. <laughs> but... Could you just share for our listeners where you got that idea? Wh what does it mean exactly? And um, the inspiration behind it, uh, as well as what happened, because it, it became very big. Yeah. So I, I want to give a little bit of context before explaining the specific practice. And I, I grew up in a non-religious household. I, I grew up in England. Um, and, you know, certainly as a gay teenager, I had only negative things to say about religion. So it was rather a surprise to the people who loved me that I ended up in divinity school. Um, but the path there was really one of um, being involved in, in uh, activism, especially around climate change, noticing that the leaders who I most respected in social justice movements nearly always had something spiritual going on. They had a um, you know, maybe a meditation practice, or they had, uh, they, they, they were part of a congregation, or there, there was something going on. And I had worked in the nonprofit world and, and felt kind of a, a, a growing sense of, um, yeah, just discomfort within, within that world and was looking for some, something else to draw on. And so I ended up in divinity school um, but I was still, you know, a gay atheist <laughs> when I came into div school. So um, was always thinking about, okay, I'm learning stuff in the classroom, but how does it apply to my life? How does it apply to the world that isn't, you know, uh, religious in the kind of traditional sense? And so I was in a Hebrew Bible class learning all sorts of interesting things about the history of the Bible. 
and how it's very different from what most of us think it is. Um, and I was really interested in the way in which we were engaging the text. Uh, and one of my dear friends in Divinity School had been writing her thesis on reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text, uh, classic Bronte, uh, Bronte book. And uh, I, I went along to one of her sessions where she was reading it as a sacred text. And I was like, this is cool but we should do it with a book that more people <laughs> more people read and enjoy and that still has this really active fandom so we so we started treating harry potter as a sacred text now what what we mean by that is a different way of reading than we usually do to kind of enjoy a book right we're, we're not reading it to understand the plot or even kind of a comfort reading what we mean by sacred reading is that we are bringing questions of ultimate concern to the text so we're trying to navigate Big questions about love or revenge or, or forgiveness or, um, you know, all, all of these really kind of deliciously juicy themes. And then even better, and this is my favorite part of the podcast, we take a specific piece of text, so a line or a sentence or even a few words, and then we go through traditionally either Jewish or Christian practices, uh, those are the kind of two cultural traditions that we draw from, uh, uh, it, it, to use that piece of text as a stimulation for a, for a different kind of reflection. So I'll give you one. I'll give you one example. Um, one of my favorite practices is lectio divina, which is the Latin uh, for sacred reading. Very simple translation. Um, and it was really popularized by a Carthusian monk in the 13th and 14th centuries called Guijo II. And essentially, he was helping people kind of uh, engage with the Bible. And so we use his his steps kind of altered for our for our uh, time period with with Harry Potter. And the first step is to read it narratively, like what's going on in this sentence. But then we take a second step and we ask ourselves, what might this mean allegorically? You know, are we reminded of of other stories or songs or movies or poems or really anything that expands our mind? And it doesn't have to be rational. So if we think about the first sentence of the Harry Potter books. Um, you know, where we learn about Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, who uh, lived at number four Privet Drive, and they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. If you're familiar with the books, you'll, you'll recognize them. Uh, you know, we might think about the, uh, the house number, right? Number four Privet Drive. What are we reminded of by the number four? Um, you know, the, the, the four members of ABBA. Uh, we might think about uh, four calling birds in the Christmas carol. Like, whatever it is, that's fine. And it's really about expanding our imagination. The third step is then to think about an experience that we've had ourselves that connects with the text. And the fourth step is to think about an action that we might take because we've gone through this reflection process. So even though we're starting with Harry Potter, you're actually ending up with maybe an action that you want to take about reconnecting with a loved one who you haven't spoken to or apologizing to a friend or trying out a new recipe. So it's very much about using the text as a mirror for our own life, for our own questions, um, and, and turning to the text as if it has uh, uh, wisdom to share with us about how to live. And so if you're interested in reading Harry Potter this way, you've been doing this for a number of years now, right? I, I mean, it's been like six years. <laughs> yeah. so there's hundreds of hours of <laughs> Harry Potter as sacred text available on your podcast. Um, and six years in, how has the experience of um, reading Harry Potter changed in this, in this way. Yeah. 
Well, one of the biggest changes is that when Vanessa and I set out to do it together, and it was an in-person class in Cambridge, Massachusetts, before it became a podcast, you know, we said, we're going to show up every, for a whole year, every Wednesday evening from 7.30 to 9, even if no one else joins us. And of course, the the biggest difference is that not only did people join us in that class, but we now have a a podcast community of of more than 60,000 people um, that, that, get together, I guess, every week to listen to the show. But not only that, we have over 90 local groups and and have done all sorts of live shows and interesting events online more recently during COVID. And so the the biggest difference is that there is a community of readers. And we we always feature a listener in each episode. So we're always not, you know, we're not getting stuck in our own reading or we're not getting dogmatic about our own reading because we're always hearing from one another. And that's one of the principles for us about sacred reading is that you have to do it in community. Um, So that's that's, that's a huge difference. For, for me personally, in terms of how I engage with the text, you know, there were days when I wake up and I think, what are we doing? You know, this was a children's book at first. You know, it's a book that I love. More recently, it's become a much more challenging text because of the actions of, of the author, J.K. Rowling, uh, and, and her transphobia, which has really, really hurt uh, a, a lot of the book's biggest fans, um, in, including myself. Uh and so the, the text isn't, I, I don't want to say it was ever pure, but it, perhaps it was easier to turn to this book than to a traditionally religious text. And in some ways, the text has been, uh, has become more complicated uh, and, and so obviously imperfect in a way that it honestly mirrors more traditional religious texts in an interesting way. So there are days when I think, is, is it really worth doing? Is this really the right thing to do? And then as soon as Vanessa or I get into conversation and we're digging into one of the practices, there's always something that, that is given back to us, which is an, another one of our principles is that, you know, the, the more we engage with the text, the more gifts it will give us uh, in, in our own lives. And that's because of the, the rigor and the discipline of, of being in conversation, being in community and, and keeping um, those questions about how we want to live at, at the heart of our reading. Yeah, I want to stick a pin in that J.K. Rowling's recent uh, actions question, because I do have some questions about it in a minute. But before we get there, um, you know, there's also, um, your whole book is about sort of secular rituals that take on a, a spiritual dimension and, uh, sacred reading is one, but you have a lot of other examples. Could you talk a little bit about other examples of this phenomenon that, that you saw and you included in your book? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interest in this kind of secular sacred crossover situation really came for me because we have these, we these two enormous trends that that are happening all around us. We we have more and more people describing themselves as less and less religious, especially people in in my generation and younger. You know, forty percent of American millennials now describe themselves as as non religious, and we think that number might be as high as fifty percent for Gen Zs. So extraordinary changes in just a few generations. And at the same time, I, you know, I don't think that that our generation has kind of like figured everything out and everything's great, right? We have this extraordinary rise in in the experience of loneliness. Um, the suicide rate is at a 30-year high, right? Like there's, there's, there's clearly a fraying fabric of relation uh, relationships. And, and for me, these two are connected. And so when we look at people, you know, going to their fitness community, for example, um, to, to get married uh, or going to their fitness instructor to, to ask them for counsel as they navigate a divorce or, or a diagnosis or a death of a loved one, um, 
these, these are phenomena not happening in isolation, but as part of this kind of changing culture. Um, and one of the things that, one of the rituals that for me has become really, really important is the idea of a tech Sabbath. Um, and this is, you know, not new in, in any way. Of course, there's digital detoxing that's been happening for some time, you know, spaces that are, that are tech-free or phone-free. Uh, and, and, and far beyond that, the tradition of the, the Sabbath, especially in Judaism, has such a rich and beautiful history. Um, and I was massively inspired um, both by Jewish friends and mentors, but also uh, by a, a wonderful little book, which I highly recommend to, to all our listeners, uh, called The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel, great Jewish theologian uh, uh, of the 20th century. And um, one of the key things that he reframed for me, when we think about Sabbath, we often think about rest or kind of an imposition that, that, that maybe doesn't, um, you know, doesn't feel very attractive. Um, but that the basic idea is that, you know, we rest because we're preparing to work again, right? Like we're taking this break, we're doing some self-care so that we can come back stronger and faster and everything else. And, and Heschel says that the, the Jewish tradition tells us that that is the exact inverse of how we should think about Sabbath, that the Sabbath doesn't exist to support our work, our work exists to support our Sabbath, right? So that time of rest is the point of the work week, that, that we work so that we can have that taste of heaven, as he says, or that we can enter that palace in time. And as someone who is, I hope I'm not alone in this, a little bit of a workaholic and, you know, who can who can numb all the feelings by getting into the inbox, um, you know, the, the tech Sabbath practice has become just extraordinarily important to me personally. And so I... Uh, when it gets kind of dark on, on Friday night, I turn off my phone, I turn off my laptop, I hide them uh, in, in the bookshelf so I'm not tempted. Uh, and then um, I light a candle and I sing a little song that I learned in summer camp as a child. And for me, it is like crossing, you know, we can't travel very much now, but we can travel through time. And that's my experience of, of the Tech Sabbath is that we can we can kind of move into a different way of being that has been ritualized by by that crossing, by that entering of, of, of kind of tech Sabbath space. Um, and so this is one of the examples, I think, of, of how we can draw on the wisdom of religious tradition to create or recreate, reimagine rituals that are super practically helpful for us navigating the modern world. Um, and, and I think it's, it's just one of the, yeah, one of the, one of the many rituals that I talk about in the book that, that can be, you know, enormously supportive uh, right now. So, why would someone decide to sort of make their own rituals, a tech Sabbath, as opposed to, you know, um, getting very into their Jewish tradition or reading Harry Potter as their sacred text rather than, you know, getting really into one of our legacy religions like um, Christianity, um, which has a lot of reading the Bible as a sacred text. What are, what are the advantages or uh disadvantages that you see in this sort of secular remaking of our spiritual rituals? So the first thing I want to say very clearly is I am absolutely not saying that people should leave behind a tradition in which they found a home. You know, my, my orientation is that we all find practices, communities um, that help us uh, experience our true belonging and become the kind of people that we want to uh, want to be in the world uh, and, and feel a connection to something bigger than ourselves. And so, you know, if, if you find that as a Buddhist, if you find that as someone who's, you know, deeply uh, into their, their Jewish practice, wonderful. Please continue. Uh, 
I'm really interested in serving the folks who often fall between the cracks or, or who weren't raised with anything. You know, I didn't grow up with any particular religious tradition, so there's nothing really for me to return to. Um, and again, as someone who, who is gay, and, and there are so many ways in which people have been marginalized, sexuality is, is one of them. Religious institutions have a lot to answer for in terms of the way in which they have marginalized and excluded people. So my orientation is really to think about what are the practices that people already have, right? What are, what are the things that we already love, whether it's a book or a movie or a, a recipe that we cook um, that is special to us? And how can we use those things that we're already doing as an invitation into developing a sacred practice of some sort? And then to learn about the history and the theology that enriches and ennobles that everyday practice. So I don't think the choice is really between like, are you going to read the Bible or are you going to read Harry Potter as a sacred text? Nearly always it's like, are you not going to do a sacred practice or are you willing to try Harry Potter or, or, or you know, whatever favorite book you have as a sacred text, right? It, it, it's about ca can we find a safe way into the sacred that, that is relevant and resonant um, versus nothing at all? Yeah, I was as I was reading your book, I was thinking of doing it to Frank Herbert's Dune, which of course they're making into a movie, and was my sort of coming of age story that I must have read four or five times when I was like a teenager and then in college as well. Um, wow, I have only seen the trailer. I've not read the. It's a graphic novel, right? I've I've sadly no, not it's read a it. science fiction novel. Or it's science fiction. Okay, forgive me. Uh, but it's a really good one. I just, um, I did read all the Harry Potter series, uh, but it, it was never my, you know, my touchstone. I think I was just a yes. little old for it when it finally uh, landed in my reading pile. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I want to, I have some uh, tougher questions now um, about the theme of uh, betrayal. Uh, mm. One of the first examples in your book is uh, CrossFit and how people had an almost spiritual community relationship with this for-profit organization. And you interviewed the founder and, it, you know, it sounded amazing. You do these workouts that are dedicated to, you know, war heroes and, you know, you raise your children together and everything sounded so good. And it reminded me though of, you know, a couple of months ago where I, this uh, CrossFit gym where I had taken like, you know, a couple of months of classes before quarantine um, sent out, you know, a, a breathless email saying that they were cutting off all relationship with the CrossFit organization. And now they were just a weightlifting gym. And I was like, okay, what happened? And I, I read the news and it turns out this guy who was, you know, a fitness guru and uh, uh, your first example of, um, of, you know, secular rituals that provide meaning had uh, said the most terrible, shocking, gruesome, you know, things about the George Floyd murder. And uh, that's right. Um, yeah. And then, of course, uh, we also have um, the J.K. Rowling incident and in that, you know, she's not the same person uh, who, or at least publicly, as she was when you started this this exercise. Um, she to, for the listeners who don't know, she wrote a very long essay that was very transphobic and bigoted, uh, and terrible and offensive and scientifically inaccurate. I mean, it was just riddled with problems. Yeah, it was terrible. And if you want a amazing condemnation, actually, on your podcast there is an hour long um, episode where you invite on a trans guest and you talk about the science and you condemn it in no uncertain terms. And for people who are interested. 
Um, I encourage you to go to the feed and find that episode. But, you know, in that episode, you say, you know, uh, about J.K. Rowling, she's an excellent writer. So she's really good at being very manipulative with her words. And, you know, I don't disagree when it's coming to that, uh, that essay. And then, you know, later on in the feed, a little bit later, you're, you're back doing the sacred ritual of reading um, Harry Potter as a, as a sacred text. And I'm wondering, like, how do you see that this issue of betrayal or, you know, engaging with your sacred rituals, even when the people who um, are sources for them uh, have disappointed you terribly? Well, let, let me just add one other name that I mentioned in the book who ended up uh, exactly in that same pattern, which was Jean Vanier, the founder of the, the L'Arche movement, an incredible um, network of communities of, of people with uh, disabilities living with people without disabilities, uh, who ended up um, being revealed as, uh, as sexually abusing women in his spiritual care, uh, which is just the most horrific. And I mean, so all, all of which is to say... Um, Absolutely. I recognize that feeling of betrayal and disappointment and rage and um, sense of hopelessness, right? Like that, that sense of, you know, maybe you meet your hero, maybe you, and, and you see their, their faults um, in, in all their, in all their horrors. So absolutely. So the, the, the questions that are brought up well, let me, let me say one, one thing to counter the, the experience of those particular individuals, because, of course, both for us on the podcast, we've never engaged authorial intent, right? We're, we're never asking questions like, what, what, does the, what does the author mean by this? Or why is there a plot hole between this scene and that scene? And, you know, what was she thinking when she created this world or this character or the situation? That's never our interest. We're always interested in the relationship between our lives and the book. And I think one of the most beautiful things that happened in the wake of, you know, and, and she had tweeted earlier in the year and even last year, things to a, to a similar theme. Um, the response from the fandom has been, uh, vocal and uh, widespread. Um, and so for me, it's wonderful to, to see how many, many people are trying to navigate how to claim the text that they love and the parts of their identity, right? They might have a Gryffindor tattoo or, you know, th th there's so many pieces of this that, that goes so deep for so many people. How to navigate those things which were true and continue to be true and to integrate this really horrible stance, this aggressive, ill-informed uh, stance that J.K. Rowling has taken. Um, and honestly, it looks different for different people. Some people are saying, I can't engage with Harry Potter right now, and maybe never again. Some people are saying, and this is a question we've had in our community to decide, do we want to continue this podcast, right? Is this is it inherently harmful to do this? Um, and, and so we've invited listeners to, to vote and to write to us and, and, and share their opinion. Um, and, and by and large, certainly the majority, in particular, the majority of trans and non-binary listeners said, continue, but we need to do this differently. So as we prepare uh, to, to, we're in book seven now, the, my, my co-host and, and a new co-host will start with book one in the spring. Um, we're going to change the structure of the show and, and bring in more of a critical lens, um, which has always been part of good sacred text study, 
right? Uh, sometimes in evangelical Christian communities, you'll see a very, um, uh, I don't even want to say simplistic, because I think it's more than that, but uh, a, a willful literalist reading of the Bible, which honestly is not how the ancients read the Bible. It was always uh, a book that described rather than prescribed how to live, uh, right? It, 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 it always had horrible sections, right? People bashing children, babies against a wall, right? Like these are scenes in the Bible. It's not to say that that's how we want it to happen, but it gives us an opportunity to, to wrestle with life's hardest questions. So all of that to say, um, I don't think it invalidates what the community is. And, and even your CrossFit gym or former CrossFit gym is a good example. More than a thousand of the 15,000 CrossFit affiliate gyms disaffiliated in response to what Greg Glassman did, and he was summar summarily fired. Um, and so you can see how a community takes ownership of the practices uh, uh, and, and the narratives that that belong to them, ultimately, no longer to their author. But it, it doesn't make invisible the deep pain that those people cause. Yeah, it, it struck me. Uh, I went back and listened to a couple episodes just, you know, really early on uh, and from the first book and then, you know, six years later. Um, now that, you know, it is a coming of age story, Harry Potter. And there was a bit of a coming of age feeling to the um, the sacred reading as well, because what started as a very like uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed, um, you know, we're going to sacred read starting with the first book. Here we go. Uh, look at us, like we're, we're gathering so much wisdom from a less problematic source and we're having fun and being, you know, living in a wizard world um, and having spiritual insights to one of the latest episodes where they're, you know, they're just these cynical asides about the author that are weaved into the ritual of reading the book and looking for wisdom. And I was wondering if, you know, do you feel that uh, you've come of age at all in, in reading this book as a sacred text? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, certainly we have learned a lot in, in terms of how to to practice sacred reading, which I would say is part of the maturation. Um, whenever we start a new practice, um, we invite a guest on who is richly steeped and, and usually ordained in, in, in the tradition uh, to teach us about how how to practice this practice. So there's a lot that I've just learned in terms of, of how to engage the text. Um, I mean, the books themselves also go on a journey, right? The, the first two books are, are children's books. Um, they are adventure stories appropriate for, for young children. The, darker, the, the later books are, are much more... Um, I mean, they're frightening. They're really frightening. They're about a fascist takeover of the state. Uh, they are about torture. They are about death. They are about the the most. Um, they are about betrayal uh, and forgiveness, right? They they are about really mature themes um, that demand, I think, a different kind of conversation. Um, and so, in that sense, the the books also mature, and it's it makes sense that we're talking more about politics rather than uh, uh, wonder, right? Uh, in in the way that we were maybe at the beginning. But at the same time, I think, you know, from the very beginning, the story we told was about, um, you know, we, we always start each episode with a with a little story from our own lives or from history. And, and we started with a story about how a small town in France uh, chose to hide Jews in the Second World War uh, against an, a, a, Nazi, a Nazi, you know, extermination campaign, a genocide. So in some ways, I, I feel like those seeds of 
sincerity and, and intensity have been there from the beginning. But, you know, I'm also six years older and <laughs> I don't want to say six years wiser, but certainly have faced uh, new experiences and, and sadnesses and uh, and joys, I hope. So so, so that comes through. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm maturing <laughs> at the same rate as, uh, as we're going through those books chapter by chapter. But it sounds like, you know, if you knew then what you know now, you would do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We might have, we might have done it differently. I, th I think, you know, there, there would have been more room. And it's not just the transphobia. I mean, whether it's uh, around race or class or, 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 or uh, you know, the way in which people's bodies are, are written about, there's, there's many, many problematic elements of, of, of her writing. Um, so we, we already knew it was imperfect, but this, it's been weaponized in a way uh, by the author at, to a scale that, that really is different from, from where we were six years ago. Hey, Ian, uh, you got a quote for us today? Always. Here's one from Ginny Deer, who was on one of our episodes back in December. The realization that you are mortal may come and go. Short, uh, simple, perfect, right? I know, I know. And she was talking about, actually, uh, when you're close to death in her book, what does it feel like to die? Check out the episode. Some of her... Just the way she writes sentences had to make it into the app too, of course, because that's what it's all about: is remembering that we're gonna die and that uh, that time is precious and that we all have to go through this. You can enjoy quotes from Jenny Deer along with hundreds of other authors in our amazing um, quote database that Hansa has put together with such love and care, with contributions from from you and folks all around the world. And later this year, we're actually going to be sending our 50 millionth reminder to some lucky WeCroak user, reminding them, don't forget, they're going to die and delivering another awesome quote along with that. Who knows what that quote will be? Um, maybe, maybe someday uh, soon we will get to find out. But in the meantime, let's get back to the episode at hand. One thing, one argument you seem to be making in that section of your book, and I want to make sure I got it right, is that sacred reading is about how you approach a text, not which text you choose and it being sacred. Um, did, I, did I get that right? Does it really not matter which text you select to read with this sacred methodology? Yeah, and this this is a question that Vanessa, my co-host, and I kind of disagree on a little bit. Um, I think she would really invite us to think about what text is worthy of our attention, right? What what text is worthy of um, the, the the time and the effort and the the rigor that you bring to sacred reading? And I, you know, that I think she's not wrong. But I have a little bit more, I guess, of of a a willingness to try uh, th these practices with any sorts of text, right? Whether it's a poem or a text message or a or a serial box, I I I I say that kind of playfully, but I say it because it's so much to to point to the relationship that we bring to the text. You know, one of my favorite definitions of what makes a text sacred is when a community gathers over time and continues to say that it's sacred. Right. I, I don't believe in divine authorship. Uh, I don't even really believe in sort of divine revelation in human authorship. I really think it's about the 
the relationship that is built with a text over time uh, among a community. So if all of us wanted to start reading, you know, uh, uh, the phone book, <laughs> sacred. I, who knows? Maybe we would get somewhere. Um, but it's really, for me, it's a third thing. It's a prompt that we learn to engage that helps us into reflection and conversation that brings us towards meaning and purpose and, and clarifying the things that we care about that we want to take action on. You know, I found when I was reading your book, you know, it's called The Power of Ritual. And I found I agreed with you that these everyday things like just reading something in a sacred way or eating together with a certain ritual uh, to create community, having um, like a similar diet so that you all eat together was addressed in the book, um, that they are, you know, really powerful at creating community, at creating belonging, at creating identity, at, you know, finding wisdom that you believe in strongly that gives you meaning. Um, and, you know, also the flip side of power, though, is that it can be dangerous if misused. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about is um, one of the stories that's in America a lot, which is, um, have you read much on the QAnon conspiracy? That's sort of such a like rising news story at the moment. I, I have read the bare minimum, not wanting to lose myself in rage. Uh, so I'm familiar with it, but certainly far from an expert. Well, it had sort of eluded me um, what on earth was going on here because people were having like a cult-like response yes. of creating this world to um, this anonymous writer known as Q do, delivering these Q drops, which are anonymous posts commenting on world events with a lot of language, secretive metaphors, all these things. But I read an article about it and it didn't click until I read your book. What they basically described was, um, you know, a, a sacred reading practice, like you describe in your book of they are very excited every time one of these, they call them revelations, and they look at every word very carefully, and they interpret it, and they do it together. And, um, you know, but, but rather than coming to wisdom, they go a little crazy. Um and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how to how to make your own rituals uh, more safely. Mm, mm, this is such an important reflection. The best metaphor I always have for religion is is that it's like a fire. You know, it can be the candle which which shines beautiful light right around the room. It can be the hearth around which we gather, but it can also burn your house down, uh, uh, and it can and it can hurt. It can torture. Um, and I feel like if, if we're not careful, uh, that these practices can become extremely, extremely harmful. And, and as I said, they have been weaponized in history against women, against queer people, against, uh, you know, uh, colonized people, all, all sorts of ways in which religion has become a very, very damaging uh, thing. Uh, so I, I think it's a powerful analogy. Absolutely. I mean, one, one of the ways I think we often see the kind of dangers of spiritual practices is when people do it alone, um, which is different from your example, but it's worth pointing to because so much of our kind of spiritual life in the spiritual but not religious world or the wellness world or the well-being world um, is very much about an, an isolationist kind of approach to spiritual practice, right? It's you have your crystals and your your tarot deck and, and you find your own way. Um, and I think very often 
when we're not careful, when we do these things alone, we can either end up in a story, a kind of supremacy story where we're better than everyone else, or inversely in a story where we are, we get lost in the story that, that we're the worst and we're so shameful and, you know, no one else is as bad as we are. Uh, and we kind of get lost in, in that sense as well. And there's no, um, there's no one else to pull us out of those stories, right? If we're doing them alone in a way that hopefully in a healthy kind of congregational model, you would. The other example, and maybe that's where th th that's more relevant to the QAnon example, is that this is why we have bishops, <laughs> right? Like this is why you have authority systems within some religious communities, not all, right? Quakers, Baptists, there are all sorts of, within the Christian tradition, there's all sorts of examples of, 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 uh, of a very kind of low authority-centered um, polities or, or, or the organizing principles of how denominations or religious movements organize themselves. But this is why in a Methodist or an Anglican uh, or a Lutheran context, you do have bishops, that you have someone who has authority outside of the community who can keep a sort of loving, watchful eye to ensure that the community is in health. And it might be unhealthy because like some of the examples we've talked about before, there is a, a, an abusive leader. Uh, it might be unhealthy because, um, you know, in a congregational context that the finances aren't in order. There's all sorts of ways uh, things can become unhealthy, uh, that, that, it, that it becomes like a cancer uh, in, in the community like QAnon. Um, and so th this is one of the, the dangers when we think about drawing on religious uh, practice or, or wisdom, um, that we don't think about what the safeguards are that, that we need to, to stay in health. Uh, and for, you know, for us in the podcast, we, we have a former professor who's an ordained minister who is, who is kind of that figure for us. You know, she's the person who's agreed to, to help us resolve conflicts if we have one as a team. She's the person who you know, keep, keep, keeps a loving eye on us. And, and we turn to her um, as, as, as a little bit of our, our guide to, ha to help us navigate really big challenges. Um, now, I don't want to say that like religious institutions know how to do this perfectly. Hello, Catholic Church. Um, so it, it, it's not as if, you know, secular spaces are inherently more in danger of doing this than religious ones. I, I don't believe that. I think as human beings, we're inherently, uh, we, ha we have that fallibility built in whatever we're doing. Um, but that's that's one example of how religious communities have tried to counterbalance to that sort of kind of cult-like, herd-like uh, activity that can be so damaging. Yeah, I mean, I think back in the day, they had this institution called heresy, where if someone had the audacity to approach uh, Harry Potter, for example, as a sacred text, it would round you up and burn you at the stake. And uh, honestly, this is, this, this is important to me because it, it, the same with the tech Sabbath, right? It, it in one reading of the book, and I really hope no one would have this takeaway, but it could look a little bit like supermarket sweep, right? Like running through religious history and like taking the things that look good. And that's really, really antithetical to, to, to how I hope I operate. And and partly why I had the <laughs> the confidence to to write a book like this and to talk about these practices is because I have, I'm so lucky to have amazing mentors and deeply religious people across especially Judaism and Christianity um, who are immensely generous in, in helping to navigate uh, what's healthy and what isn't healthy, both in my personal life and, and in my writing and my work. Um, and so I wouldn't have done this if I didn't have their explicit encouragement and support. Um, you know, from, from, from Catholic nuns to rabbis, uh, because I it would be dangerous, I think, 
Um, so I, I, I really want to make sure that, that I say that in this conversation because you're asking such good questions. Um, because it, I, I think we need that kind of accountability and support. Like those two things come together. Yeah, I, I have to say, I actually think we absolutely should be looking at our you know, legacy traditions for forms that are useful and helpful, especially now with so many people suffering from depression, anxiety, so many things. And have the courage to say, you know, for example, on heresy doctrine, like, absolutely not. We are not bringing that back. <laughs> right, right. And and this is this. The more you learn about religious history, the more you see how you know they invented purgatory, and then they said, oh, actually, it's not real, right? In terms of the Catholic Church, right? You you can every tradition was once an innovation. Uh, th- these are not kind of. Uh, eternal traditions that have just existed. They have been mediated by human beings and human institutions and have changed over time. They've encountered one another and influenced one another. They've influenced and been influenced by the market and new technologies, right? I, I fundamentally think that it is our responsibility and honestly an inheritance that we get is to engage these traditions and then find ways for them to live in this moment. It is not about keeping them somehow pure and perfect. They never were. Our job is to find the wisdom in them that, that, that speaks to our experience right now and that helps us live lives of meaning and, and, and justice. Um, and so if we're trying to do it without looking at these traditions, I think we're missing out massively. Uh, and if we're trying to just maintain those traditions, I think we're fundamentally misunderstanding them. And just to play uh, devil's advocate for a second, what if you're just like eh, rituals, religions, no, thank you. Seems dangerous. I don't want to, you know, get caught up in anything. Uh, I'm going to pass, hard pass. Uh, what would you be giving up by really turning away from all rituals, secular and religious, in your life? Honestly, I would say it's impossible. <laughs> I, you know, humans are meaning-making creatures. We we create ritual, whether we intend to or not, to some extent. Um, the, you know... So, so the first thing is, I think, maybe to say, if we're, if we're going to draw that distinction, it's maybe folks are saying, you know, I'm not interested in a spiritual life or religion or, or some of the more overt forms of, of ritual like we've talked about, um, which everyone is absolutely welcome to do. I, I, I will say that for me personally, it has been a source of great, um, not only comfort uh, and kind of a, a growing sense of, of finding a grounding that is not just about um, you know, how I look or how much I earn or what other people think of me. Um, but it also, I'm learning to trust what these practices orient me towards. Howard Thurman, great uh, um, African-American Christian preacher and teacher, um, talks about how, you know, practices are there to help shift our attention towards the suffering of others. Um, that that it, it, so often, at least... <laughs> At least my experience of myself is like, I'm a very selfish person. Like I'm thinking about me most of the time and I need help, honestly, to get me out of my own bubble to remember that I'm not the center of the universe and that there are things that are more important than me. And, you know, many other people who are having not only, you know, experiences, but often suffering much more than me. And so these traditions, these practices are there to help us be the kind of person I hope we would all want to be. Um... And so if, 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 we're, if we're saying like, oh, I, there's nothing for me here, or I, I don't trust these, these institutions or these traditions, I, I think we are missing out in, in, in real hard-earned wisdom. You know, we are not the first generation to grapple with questions uh, of justice or of um, 
of healing or of uh, ambition, you know, what, whatever it is, um, we can enter into that river of conversation that has been flowing for millennia that we get to learn and participate in. You know, we don't have to just accept it. Um, we, we get to wrestle with and engage these questions and these traditions. Um, and and that, that's, what, that's why I talk about that language of inheritance, because I, I, I think we should all have access to that. I like that idea. I have a question for you, because um, we, you know, we're tackling that idea of betrayal and these, these things. Um, how much does the practice of ritual and the practice of morality or ethics intersect? Are they the same? Is there, is there a Venn diagram where they're part of the same circle, or are they just two separate practices? I, I love this question because it's, I think, one of the most misunderstood pieces of ritual. Um, so often we think about rituals as kind of decorative, right? Like it's there to, to bring us maybe pleasure or, 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 or to make life more beautiful in some sense. And of course it, it can do that, but rituals are also formative. Um, every ritual, Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, talks about rituals as embodying myth, that when we participate in a ritual, we are retelling ourselves that myth, that we are re, uh, that we're participating in a story essentially. And that those stories have values, uh, right? That that when we're practicing a ritual, we're, we're becoming, we're practicing a certain image of the world. And if we're not careful, if we don't think about what kind of values and, and, and ethics these rituals embody, we actually might be practicing something that we disagree with. Um, so to use an example of, of the narrative, uh, you know, you think about the, the, the Jewish Passover. It's a retelling uh, of the story of the Exodus out of Egypt, right? As, as the Jewish people... Um, uh, freed themselves from slavery. Uh, and, and that is embodied in, in different, um, uh, of course, songs and prayers and, and food, most importantly. Uh, if you think about the, the, the Christian mass or the, or the Eucharist, it is a retelling of the story of the last night of, of Christ's life and a ritual in which literally people are eating bread and drinking wine that represents the body of Christ. And that in that moment, we're supposed to remember if we're participating, we're supposed to remember that we are now Christ's body, right? We are one people. We are, we are uh, brought into union once again. Um, and so th these rituals embody uh, uh, real ethical uh, stances. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of the ways I think that the kind of encroachment of capitalism into spirituality, which is, goes long before this moment, uh, brings up all sorts of interesting questions because how can we, how can we judge if something is trustworthy? How can we judge if it's if it's pure enough? Uh, uh, because absolutely, there are they, they don't live outside of of the question of of ethics. Um, I think ethics are inherently embedded in ritual practice. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, what do you think? I'm I'm curious what you would say. I've always thought so. I mean, you you hope that part of the reason to do ritual or join a religion or read Harry Potter as a sacred text is hopefully, or do yoga or meditation is that you're trying to become a better person, right? That, that is part of the goal. Um, based on a lot of the betrayals and disappointments we're talking about, I'm not, I'm less sure that there's a lot of intersection um, than I used to be. Mm. Can can I offer one slight edit to the way that you framed that, which which might 
at least it helps me, which is that it, I mean, sometimes it is about trying to be a better person, right? In that kind of, that kind of frame. But sometimes it's about making space to remember how shitty we are as people and, and that we don't get caught up in the story that we're better than others. I mean, at least that's true for me, um, right? So many of these practices are, are, are really about humility. Um, Richard Raw is one of my favorite um, writers and thinkers. Uh, uh, talks, he, he says he prays every day for a humiliation. I'm not quite at that level yet because that, that's some real... <laughs> That's some real like spiritual ninja skills, but but he he says he needs that kind of daily humiliation to to be right sized, right? Not 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 to get inflated into his ego. And so for me, sometimes these practices are, are also just about remembering our nature, right? E- even more than than bettering our nature, they are about just remembering who we are in in all our beauty and all our all our flaws. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I think uh, practices or rituals, remembering that um, to be humble are really important, and uh, ones I'm very interested in. I'll just I'll share a story of of my of my own uh, betrayal of a spiritual teacher, uh, just so you don't feel alone. Please. Um, <laughs> for the last six years or so, I've been doing this meditation and yoga practice. Uh, kundalini style uh, with a wonderful teacher that I found in New York that a, a friend brought me to class and really just worked for me. I've got a really like nervy body. So lots of like chanting and holding your arms above your head while you meditate for an hour and just crazy stuff like that, that just um, quieted my mind so that I could enter that meditative state. And I really think that uh, if I stopped doing it, I would probably have to start taking Prozac. I'm not going to stop uh, I've been doing it for many years now, and I love it. And I've taught some of it. And um, you know, in the last couple months, it came out that the the teacher who first brought it to the West um, did a lot of terrible things to women. Um, I love me too, uh, like in so many other stories. And um, I had a big crisis of faith about it. Um, and then it occurred to me that, like, hey. Like, I kind of already knew this. Like, if I'm about to teach a yoga class or meditation, I don't sit here and worry about whether the students are good people. Um, I just trust that, you know, these these breathing techniques, these gestures, these postures will soothe your tormented nervous system, whether it's tormented because you've been sitting at a computer all day or because uh, you murdered your brother. <laughs> You know, it'll just, it'll work. Um, that there's something just totally amoral about meditation, about yoga, about many of these rituals that I absolutely need to be a functional human being, but that, you know, in order to really get what I'm looking for, I need other practices that have a much more concrete moral dimension. First of all, I'm really sorry, because uh, it, it sucks. Um, and I... You know, the thing it makes me think about is that when we're in positions of power, particularly spiritual power, those the, 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 the practices that might be fine if you're, you know, stressed from, from a day at the office are different from the practices that you need if you're leading a spiritual community, um, right? You, you need the kind of uh, much stronger networks of accountability, much stronger networks of support. And, and these are some of the things that, Honestly, I, I'm really passionate about pointing to as these new communities, mostly secular, 
grow and people are being put, whether they want to or not, into the positions of a priest or a rabbi or, or, or a pastor of some sort, that you need some training to know how to navigate that power dynamic. Because it doesn't all come from you know, the person in the role of authority. It also comes from a lot of the, the projection that people put onto you as an authority figure. Um, and so you know, le- learning not only the, the, the wisdom of these traditions about the practices that can serve all of us, but also the, the wisdom of these traditions in how you have to navigate religious leadership is, is a whole set of, of other practices that I, I think are, are, are important. Um, you know, something as simple as like, if you're having a one-on-one uh, conversation with, with someone, uh, maybe you always leave the door open, right? So that, that there is always visibility. Um, one of the first things that we learn in se- sexual ethics in divinity school is that if you are attracted to a congregant, and you will be, the first thing you do is you tell someone that you have that attraction because it takes the sting out of the, the power over you. Right. It, 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 so, th- so there are actual strategies um, that are not just about you know what you choose to do, but but you know how how other people have access to your life and can see what you're doing. Um, that I think these traditions offer us if we if we engage them wisely. Yeah, I guess um, it is a very in- interesting question. If if you are stepping up into a position of ritual power, how to protect yourself from um, that position? It seems like a perilous place is that is that sort of the argument yeah yeah absolutely and uh your answer to that is there are communities of people who have practices that you can uh get some guardrails with yeah and and structures you know that 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 you you don't center all the authority in yourself you give other people decision making power all all sorts of ways in which and, and there's different strategies i'm not saying there's one way to do it but um you know, I guess what I'm saying is those questions are not new. Those those betrayals are not new, um, and so there's there's wisdom that we can learn about how religious traditions have tried to 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 minimize the the risk of those things happening. Yeah, I guess, and for me at least, it's still an open question of what practices um, specifically can help us practice our ethics or morality sort of goals. I do think having a system of accountability of talking to people, having peers uh, is important, at least for me um, in that. Um, and uh, it's hard, I think, to tell people how to how to just like, you know, have a network of people also on a philosophical or spiritual path where they can have that kind of accountability. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Are there other places that are important for you to, to point us towards beyond beyond these practices and rituals? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I guess I asked the question because I was hoping you might have some ideas. I, I'm still <laughs> wrestling with it. This is just a couple months old where I sort of was like, oh, like meditation doesn't actually, like it's amazing in what it does, but it doesn't make you a better person in that way that I had maybe naively hoped. Um, I think um, Another one of my great inspirations is uh, Stoicism, which is practical philosophy, which has a lot of uh, tools around, um, you know, working with uh, others, uh, trying to find the the rational way of proceeding and the kind one, and often talking to a friend once before you make an action. For example, uh, an apology or an amends is something that you should absolutely, in this practice, talk with someone you trust first, because you 
you can actually do more harm when you're trying to say, I'm sorry, if you, um, you know, for example, let's say you had an affair with somebody and you felt guilty. So you told their wife and said you were sorry. Well, you could, you know, cause a lot more harm uh, if it, it was the wrong circumstance. You should probably talk to someone else with a goal of not doing any harm. Um, so those are ones I'm really leaning on when I'm trying to do ethical practice. And, you know, I consider the meditation right now about finding um, transcendence that makes me feel good. Um, that gives me hope about uh, what human consciousness is capable of and just, you know, calming my nervous system, feeling all right in my daily life. And that's, that's pretty much the limit of, um, of what I ask it to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I feel I'm definitely still, still exploring and, and trying to learn more about is really the theological questions that, that sit alongside these religious or spiritual practices, which is, you know, how do we conceptualize what it means to be human um, and the relationships we have with one another and the things of greatest consequence? And I think, uh, <laughs> although original sin is one of those theological ideas, which I raged against as a younger person, there's a lot in there that now I recognize. Um, Nadia Boltzweber, who's a wonderful Lutheran writer and pastor, says that she became a Lutheran because Lutherans were the first people who told her that she was 100% saint and 100% sinner. Um, and so, you know, perhaps alongside these practices, there's an invitation for us to think about, well, what do we actually believe about what it, what it means to be a human being, right? That to, to see in all its ugliness, the violence and hatred that we are capable of, that everyone is capable of, not just these, you know, these famous people who've, who've betrayed us, but that we ourselves are capable of and actually do probably in our daily lives. And th that there is a, um, yeah, just, just an invitation for us to, to perhaps change the story we tell ourselves about who we are and see something that's, that's more complete, even if it's more challenging. Do you have a ritual idea, perhaps from your research, um, that's good for connecting with humility? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. Um, well, the thing that I like about Richard Raw's <laughs> prayer that I mentioned before is that when you have that moment where you fail or you, you, you know, you have something which humiliates or humbles you, hopefully, you know, somewhere in a spectrum that, that doesn't completely crush us, but is to then say like, oh, here it is, you know, rather than being like, oh God, I'm dreadful. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable is, is to just recognize it and be like, oh, here's my reminder <laughs> of, of my inherent fallibility. Um, so that's one, but my very, very favorite one comes from, um, Carol Zinn, who's the, uh, um, a nun and, and a, a wonderful uh, mentor to me. And she says, you know, when, whenever we say something about someone else, um, you know, it might be, oh, uh, you know, she's so annoying. I'm going to use very timid language, but you can imagine other things that we might say. Uh, so when, when we criticize other people to say, just like me because it immediately <laughs> reminds us that we are also capable of those things. And in fact, probably have done them. But the beautiful thing that comes alongside that humility is to, to remind ourselves that, you know, I, I may not be better than anyone else, but I am just as good. So when we compliment someone else and we say, oh, he's so imaginative or she's so strong to also say, just like me. Um, and so we're, we're always kind of right-sizing ourselves. We're, we're not 
you know, making ourselves too big or too small, but just just the way we are. Just like me. I like that. <laughs> I like that one a lot. Um, and uh, readers, uh, the book is full of ideas of rituals and inspirations you can try yourself. And I want to give you um, a moment, Casper, to talk about um, if people found this discussion interesting and want more, uh, where they can find you, your podcast, your book, anything else that you're working on. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, so the book is The Power of Ritual, available uh, in all good bookstores. Support your local bookstores if you can. Um, and I write a, uh, a newsletter, uh, which you can find at caspertk.com, uh, where you can also find uh, links to the, the podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Um, and I've just created a, uh, a ritual life planner. So if you're thinking about rituals that happen once a year or a couple times a year, and you want to create a kind of an architecture of your year, you know, a, a record of your sacred times um, that you can then celebrate, not just the spiritual ones, but sporting rituals, family rituals, favorite meals, um, trips, you know, all sorts of things that make life meaningful. Um, you can uh, you can find that at caspertk forward slash ritual. I love that idea so much. Um, one final question for you before we go. Yeah, uh, I have a J.K. Rowling quote in my app, We Croak, uh, from the Harry Potter series because it's about death. Mm. And I always loved having a few quotes from something fun like a kid's book. Um, do I take it out? based on the terrible things she said about trans people, which I disagree with, or do I leave it in because the books are still pure and special and valid in some way? That's a difficult question. Um, because of course, it, 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 like a, just having a quote on its own, you, you don't have the opportunity necessarily to contextualize and to affirm, um, you know, love and respect for, for all trans and non-binary people. Um, I think honestly, it's too soon to tell. Um, because there is, there are such rich and important conversations that are happening. Um, and folks are, are worried, right? If I wear a t-shirt, a Harry Potter t-shirt and I go outside, are people going to assume that I am transphobic because I'm somehow affiliating with, with the Harry Potter world? My sense is that more and more the fandom is saying no. In fact, the very stories that, you know, she gave us affirm the way in which we would treat one another as being <laughs> completely opposite of what she's doing. Um, but I think we have to keep, you know, keep it in for now, perhaps, but keep asking yourself that question. Um, because it might be at some point that that it, that it is no longer the right thing to do. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go with that for now. It's definitely on my uh, short list of ones to consider. But uh, um yeah, it, it feels a little bit different now to have that quote in there. And I, I grieve that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, as we should. Even though that was never my favorite book, it's, you know, when you put something in there, you want it to be what you meant it to be, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Casper, uh, you've been an absolutely uh, delightful guest. Thank you for going there with me with all the tough questions. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You, you, you'd really thought these through and, and it, you know, they are hard questions and they demand real deep thought from all of us. So, so thank you for, 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 for bringing us there. <laughs> I, I agree. And um, uh, thank you. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, Casper to Kyle for joining us for this awesome episode. His book is the power of ritual, turning everyday activities into soulful practices. We'll have a link to that in his website in the show notes. And thank you for joining us for our finale episode 
of season four of the We Croak podcast. 2020 has been a year that has challenged all of us in ways that we never could have imagined. But we hope you'll continue to join us next year when we start season five of the We Croak podcast, where we will continue to talk about the things that we don't talk about enough, starting with death, but not ending there. And until then, we'll see you next time.